two questions quickly. Uh, first, can you clarify your position on the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine after you retweeted a video uh, making claims that it well, is I wasn't, effective? I wasn't making claims. The, the recommendations of many other people's and people, including doctors, uh, many doctors think it is extremely successful. The hydroxychloroquine, uh, coupled with the zinc and perhaps the zithromycin, but uh, many doctors think it's extremely good, and some people don't. Some people, I think, it's become very political. Uh, I happen to believe in it. I would take it. I, as you know, I took it for a 14-day period, uh, and uh, I'm here, right? I'm here. Uh, I happen to think it's uh, it works in the early stages. I think frontline medical people believe that too. Some, many. And so we'll take a look at it. But the one thing we know, it's been out for a long time, that particular formula, and that's what essentially what it is, the pill. And uh, it's been for malaria, lupus, and other things. Uh, it uh, It's safe. It doesn't cause problems. I had no problem. I had absolutely no problem. Felt no different. Didn't feel good, bad, or indifferent. I, and I tested, as you know. It didn't, it didn't get me, and it's not going to... Uh, hopefully hurt anybody. So we know from that standpoint, because it's been so many years, from a safety standpoint, it's safe. I happen to think, based on what I've read, I've read a lot about hydroxy. Uh, I happen to think that it has an impact, especially at the early years. There were some very good tests at uh, Ford, and the doctor from Yale came up with a very, very strong testament to it. There was a group of doctors yesterday, a large group that were put on the internet, and for some reason the internet wanted to take them down and uh, took them off. I guess Twitter took them off, and I think Facebook took them off. I don't know why. I think they're very respected doctors. Uh, there was a, a woman who was spectacular in her statements about it, uh, that she's had tremendous success with it. And they took her. They took her voice off. I don't know why they took her off, but they took her off. Maybe they had a good reason. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. I can only say that from my standpoint, uh, and based on a lot of reading and a lot of knowledge about it, I think it could have a very positive impact in the early stages. And I don't think you lose anything by doing it, other than politically, uh, it doesn't seem to be too popular. You know why? Because I recommend it. When I recommend something. They like to say, don't use it. The president again today repeated his endorsement of hydroxychloroquine, which the FDA said in June should not be used for COVID because it does not have known effects, known benefits, and it does have known risks for cardiac effects. So uh, how, how damaging is that, that he retreated the, vi the video and defended it again today? Well, the only thing that I can do, Andrea, is, is do what I've done all along consistently, is that you look at the scientific data and the evidence, and the scientific data, the cumulative data on, on trials, clinical trials that were valid, namely clinical trials that were randomized and controlled in the proper way, all of those trials show consistently that hydroxychloroquine is not effective in the treatment of coronavirus disease or COVID-19. My family received an email yesterday from a young friend of ours, a university graduate. She's now back home in her village in rural western Kenya, asking us if now there's a cure because she had seen the video. And now I see today in the newspapers in Kenya, warnings and columns to tell people, don't believe that video. If this can be transmitted around the country and globally so rapidly don't we have to do more to stop these dangerous conspiracies from yeah. misleading people yeah uh, you're absolutely correct Andrea and that's the reason why I'm very explicit and unambiguous when we say we've got to follow the science if a study that's a good study comes out and shows efficacy and safety for hydroxychloroquine or any other drug that we do. If you do it in the right way, you accept the scientific data. But right now, today, the cumulative scientific data that has been put together and done over a number of different studies has shown no efficacy. So when there's a video out there for a bunch of people spouting something that isn't true, the only recourse you have is to be very, very clear in presenting the scientific data that essentially contradicts that.
and I looked into South Korea, and I found that they were they had treated their patients with hydroxychloroquine and zinc. I wasn't sure why, but that's what they were doing. And then there was a study that came out of France, Marseille, that uh, they were using hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, but that was done in vitro in, in, in the test tube, not in patients. So I, I wanted to understand how, how this virus works. And it's actually the same as all viruses. A virus cannot grow on its own. It needs to get inside a person's cell, and then it hijacks the cell's machinery to reproduce. It's a real parasite, and in doing so, it kills the cell. So I started realizing that zinc is a mineral that's well known to uh, be used when people have colds, and there's a reason behind it. It turns out that zinc uh, inhibits a certain enzyme called replicase, doesn't matter the technical term, but that enzyme is within the cell involved in making copies of the genetic material of the virus. In other words, it helps the virus reproduce. It helps the virus grow in number. And zinc plugs that up. It throws a monkey wrench. It makes uh, the virus not replicate as fast or stops it completely. But the problem with zinc, that it's a positively charged mineral and it does not cross into the cell mem through the cell membrane easily or at all. It's difficult for the zinc to get to the place where it needs to be to be able to fight the virus. So it turns out, what does hydroxychloroquine do? And we're using this word a lot, but it's not magic. There, there is a, a, a theory behind it, a concept, which is very elegant and very beautiful. All hydroxychloroquine does is it opens a channel within the cell membrane and allows for zinc to go from outside the cell to inside the cell. Once the zinc goes inside the cell, it begins to um, attack the virus by not allowing it to reproduce. I had 911 patients that were diagnosed. I treated with the regimen only 350 patients. The rest were low risk. They were sent home with supportive care and they all got better. But the 350 patients I intervened early, immediately in my office giving this drug regimen to these patients. And let me share with you the outcomes as of today. I had zero deaths. I had three patients admitted, uh, intubated or on a respirator. Uh, subsequently, one is off now. So only two are still on the respirator. And I had six patients admitted uh, with bacterial pneumonia to receive IV antibiotics, and two of which already came home. Now. Let's do some statistics. Depending on which country you look at, the mortality rate in the high-risk patients is between 5 and 10%. We're an advanced country, so let's take the lower number of 5%. So out of those 350 patients, we statistically should have seen 17 dead people and a multiple of that on respirators. What did I see? Zero dead people and only three people on the respirator. That was a significant discovery. And I'm not claiming to find a cure. I'd rather use an analogy. Imagine a frontline soldier happens to come across some very important intelligence. And this intelligence needs to be communicated to the top general because it's going to help win the war. All right. When we use the phrase scientific study in a headline or on television, it's meant to convey a sense of seriousness, uh, of scientific rigor. And when such studies are conducted on patients, researchers must account for variables such as a patient's age, medical history, current disease progression, just to name a few things. Then the manner in which that data is organized, examined, and then reported can determine a lot about whether the study is credible or not. Well, a survey or study released yesterday on hydroxychloroquine for use on COVID patients is shockingly irresponsible. And as top virologists are saying, perhaps even agenda-driven. It was published in preprint form and not yet peer-reviewed, and it claims to show that hydroxychloroquine shows no effectiveness against COVID and its use could actually, according to this survey, lead to an even higher fatality rate. Sounds terrible. Well. 
That's when the headline readers who hate Trump and, of course, this network, that's when they pounce. Aha! Trump and some on Fox reported that patients were benefiting from hydroxychloroquine. Obviously, I was one of them reporting on that. And now, this study, they say, shows that hydroxy kills people, so... Not only is there no medical benefit, Elizabeth, this study shows higher death rates among patients who took it. Yes, much higher death rates. It could actually be harming patients who take it. Medical professionals have repeatedly urged caution, but the president and his allies at Fox News aren't known for patience or for caution. They're misleading their viewers. Why would we ever think a Fox News star or any president should be promoting a drug? It's outlandish. We're now on the subject from Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Why should we be testing it in a test tube for a year and a half when we have thousands of people that are very sick? They're very, very sick. And we can use it on those people and maybe make them better. And in some cases, maybe save their lives. President Trump says he's optimistic about some potential treatments for the novel coronavirus, in particular, a malaria drug called chloroquine. You know, this has been something that's been around for many years. Uh, it's been phenomenal, strong, powerful drug uh, for malaria. But we think it might work on this based on evidence, based on very strong evidence. It's true the medication has been around for more than 80 years and has a few side effects, including nausea and mood changes, as well as possible interactions with other drugs. Now enthusiasm for the possibility of treating the novel coronavirus largely centers on one study out of France, which used a derivative of chloroquine used with an antibiotic commonly known as the z -Pack. The study was small, and the patients were followed for only six days. The study that looked at that drug and showed um, activity uh, was, a, was a study that involved about 20 patients and only six in the arm that showed the benefit. And the benefit that they showed was that they decreased the amount of virus in their, in their noses when you did nasal swabs in those patients. So it could very well be that the drug is reducing viral shedding but having no impact on the clinical course of those patients. So the data on that is very preliminary. We took a closer look at the study and here's what we found. There were originally 26 patients in the study who were treated. 20 completed the trial. One left the hospital before the trial ended. One couldn't tolerate the medication. Three went to the intensive care unit. That's an 11% critical care rate. And one died, a 4% mortality rate. Now, those numbers are higher critical care and mortality rates than the general population of infected. But keep in mind again, it's a small study. There was another study from 2011 which found that while chloroquine was effective in the lab against the flu, it ultimately wasn't effective in humans. Look, that's why trials are needed, and they can be done quickly. Many labs in the World Health Organization had already started studying these drugs and dozens of others to help us find an answer for a disease that currently has no known cure. Using untested medicines without the right evidence could raise false hope and even do more harm than good and cause a shortage of essential medicines that are needed to treat other diseases. And at the end of last week, chloroquine was added to the American Society of Health System Pharmacists drug shortage list. So Sanjay, I mean, is there a timeline of just when more of these trials might be completed by? Well, you know, uh, it, it's probably going to be a, a few months. You know, it's, it's hard to say. There's, there's two trials that are going on with chloroquine. One is for treatment, and one is to try and give more of, as a prophylaxis to try and prevent people from getting as bad an infection. It's going to take a while, Anderson. I mean, the fact that it's an existing drug, that helps, but you, st you still got to go through trials. I mean, it's not entirely clear at all that this has worked. There was a, a very promising trial uh, that just ended uh, last week, Anderson, uh, probably the most promising trial, started just a week after the first patient was diagnosed. And after they went through the trial, they found that it didn't work, this particular uh, uh, drug therapy. So they move on. Uh, you, you've got to do these trials to make sure you're actually dealing with what you think you're dealing with. It is so interesting to have the President of the United States kind of touting these and the medical folks, you know, Dr. Fauci and others standing behind him, sort of not wanting to contradict him directly and say, essentially, you know, there's a reason studies are done. Things might look good on paper or might look good in a test tube, but unless it's actually been legitimately studied, you can't say. But 
this president does say. Yeah, I mean, look, I, that, 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 was, uh, that was wild, frankly, to, to watch this back and forth between President Trump and, and, and Dr. Anthony Fauci. I mean, you know, uh, Dr. Fauci was sort of just having to sort of fact check on the fly. But look, you know, there's a lot of hunches out there. There's, there's dozens of drugs that are being looked at right now. There's lots of hunches out there. But the reality is that most of them don't really get beyond phase two trials. So, again, that's why you've got to do the, do, do the studies, Anderson. I want to ask you about hydroxychloroquine. The president was pushing it pretty strong again yesterday. You said uh, you have prescribed this. I want to talk to you about the effects you're seeing and what it might do for people who take it normally outside of coronavirus and a possible shortage of medicine for them. Exactly. What we're finding clinically with our patients is that it really only works in conjunction with zinc. So the hydroxychloroquine opens a zinc channel, zinc goes into the cell, it then blocks the replication of the, of the cellular machinery. So it has to be used in conjunction with zinc. We are seeing some clinical responses in that regard. There are people that take it regularly for other disease processes. We have to be ca cautious and mindful that we don't prescribe it for patients who have COVID that are well. It really should be reserved for people that are really sick in the hospital or at home very sick that need that medication. Otherwise, we're going to blow through our supply for the patients that take it regularly for other disease processes. But what, but what you're saying is you're prescribing it and it is working for COVID-19 patients. Every patient I prescribed it to has been very, very ill. And within 8 to 12 hours, they were basically symptom-free. And so wow. clinically, I am seeing a resolution that mirrors what we saw in the French study and some of the other studies worldwide. Um, but what I am seeing is that people are taking it alone by itself it's not having efficacy okay wow that is uh that's very interesting news and and hopefully uh we can get that more widespread dr anthony cardillo thank you so much for your information the frontline workers many many are taking it i happen to be taking it i happen to be taking it hydroxychloroquine i'm taking it hydroxychloroquine when right now yeah yeah when a couple of weeks ago i started taking it because I think it's good. I've heard a lot of good stories. And if it's not good, I'll tell you right, I'm not going to get hurt by it. If you are in a risky population here and you are taking this as a preventative uh, treatment to ward off the virus, or in a worst case scenario, you are dealing with the virus, and you are in this vulnerable population, it will kill you. I cannot stress enough. This will kill you. As far as the president is concerned, um, the, uh, our, he's our president, and I would rather he not be taking something that has not been approved uh, by the scientists, especially in his age group and in his, shall we say, weight group, what is morbidly obese, they say. So I, I, uh, I, I think it was, it's not a good idea. Good morning and welcome to Morning Joe. It's Tuesday, May the 19th, and um, I don't even know where to begin with yesterday. Often, uh, I, the president will say things and uh, to distract, and uh, obviously we're passing a 90,000 threshold in the, uh, of dead Americans, um, and you have many saying that actually it's, it's far more than that. You have a lot of scientists and doctors and nurses saying uh, that from everything they've seen, it's, it's far more than that. But sometimes I talk about bright, shiny objects that the president tries to get us to follow or talk about separating the signal from the ground noise. And this certainly was thrown out as a distraction um, because the president always wants to distract from his failures. Hydroxychloroquine is used by thousands and thousands of frontline workers so that hopefully they don't catch this horrible disease or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it is uh, a terrible virus. It's a terrible thing. And a lot of people are taking it. A lot of doctors are taking it. A lot of people swear by it. The one thing that is true, one way or the other, whether you like it or not, it's been around for 70 years, unbelievably effective for malaria and for lupus, and probably effective for arthritis. And what has been determined is it doesn't harm you. It's a very powerful drug, I guess, but it doesn't harm you. I have a doctor in the White House. I said, what do you think? 
And it's just a line of defense. I'm just talking about as a line of defense. I'm dealing with a lot of people. Look at all the people in the room. You know, I'm the president and I'm dealing with a lot of people. I think it's worth it as a line of defense and I'll stay on it for a little while longer. I'm just very curious myself. The FDA has said hydroxychloroquine should not be used outside of a hospital setting or- No, that's not what I was told. No, there was a false study done where they gave it to very sick people, extremely sick people, people that were ready to die. It was given by obviously not friends of the administration. And the study came out, the people were ready to die. Uh, everybody was old, had bad problems with hearts, diabetes, and everything else you can imagine. So they gave it. So immediately when it came out, they gave a lot of false information. Wow, where to begin? So many false claims and uh, concerning uh, claims. Uh, President Trump defending his claim that he is taking a daily dose of the anti-malaria drug hydroxychloroquine as a preventative measure against coronavirus. Don't do that. Don't do what the president says he's doing, obviously, but we must say it. Um, according to the American Medical Association, there is no knowledge of frontline workers taking it preventatively. That was also a very misleading claim, it appears, Willie. Uh, wow. This is a whole new level. And I think the president might be putting American lives in danger. Well, unfortunately, it's the same level. It's the same thing he's been saying, and it's still wrong every time he says it. When yeah. he denies that the FDA came out and says that you should not take it. When he talks about this study, this where they went into VA hospitals, veterans hospitals, and he says it was a enemy statement, a Trump enemy statement. He's talking about a study. He so cannot see the world not through himself. In other words, everything he views, he views through the prism of his own fortunes. He believes that a study conducted at a VA hospital was somehow a conspiracy, an enemy statement to go out and get him because he had been speaking and touting hydroxychloroquine. So he's wrong on the facts. We know that. And now he's seeing some conspiracy in medical studies that they are out to get him. Well, uh, joining us now, Morning Joe Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Dave Campbell and Clinical Assistant Professor at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine's Department of Popular Health, Population Health, Dr. Lippy Roy. She is an NBC News medical contributor. Dr. Dave, we're going to talk to you about uh, vaccine potential in just a moment. But Dr. Roy, uh, the president taking hydroxychloroquine. Is there any scenario in which you think that would be a good idea? You would have a patient do that or you would have doctors administer it preventatively or frontline workers to frontline workers? Good morning, Mika. And uh, there's one, a key point that I want to make sure your viewers understand. There's a, to address a, a point that the president made, which is it doesn't harm you. So that's, that's actually a false statement. There's nothing that we do in the field of medicine that's completely benign. Even a, acetaminophen, commercially known as Tylenol, has, which you can take commercially or over the counter for headaches and fevers, can, is also the leading cause of acute liver failure. Hydroxychloroquine is known to have um, harm, potentially harmful side effects, including cardiac arrhythmias. So to answer your question, no, there's no evidence to suggest that hydroxychloroquine is effective prophylactically to prevent um, COVID-19 or as a treatment to, to treat or cure COVID-19. So my, my clear statement to the public, including my own patients, is there is no evidence to take hydroxychloroquine to treat this uh, COVID-19 infection. How would you characterize the statements that we just heard from the president as a medical professional who's especially interested in, in overall population's health? Yeah, thanks for asking that, Mika. So the, the statement that I always make is, just in generally speaking, try to get your medical information from medical professionals. I know that sounds like common mm -hmm. sense, but you know, when you're somebody who's a, a political figure uh, and a very powerful one, people will listen to you. And um, mm. frankly, when you make statements that are not based in science or evidence, um, it's, it's harmful to the, to the public. And that's what I'm really concerned about. And my next guest has been receiving alarming reports of doctors targeted by their state medical licensing boards for actually saving their patients' lives. It sounds crazy. Well, it's happening. Joining me now, Dr. Harvey Reich. He's the epidemiology professor at Yale School of Public Health. 
and one of the most renowned minds uh, in the country on epidemiology. Dr. Reich, what treatment is being targeted and how pervasive is this? Uh, good evening, Laura. So this is, of course, hydroxychloroquine, the word that nobody should ever say, according to <laughs> half the population. Um, it's, it's, so it's a political drug now, not a medical drug, and that's caused the, the complete uh, population ignorance, and I think we're basically fighting a propaganda war against the, the medical facts, and that colors not just population people, how they think about it, but doctors as well. And there are many doctors that I've gotten hostile, you know, remarks about saying that all the evidence is bad for it. And in fact, that's not true at all. And it's easy to show that the evidence, all the evidence is actually good for it when it's used in outpatient uses. Nevertheless, that the, the, the only people who actually see that are a whole pile of doctors who are actually on the front lines treating those patients across the country. And, and they are the ones who are at risk of being forced not to do it. And Dr. Rish, how important would it be now or significant if the administration, basically through the FDA, rescinded that, that warning about hydroxy, it was complete bunk, uh, made a mistake about the warning, and get out of the way of the relationship between the doctor and the patient for off-label use of a medicine that's been around for 65 years. Shouldn't Stephen Hahn of the FDA uh, come out and say, look, we're not going to micromanage your decisions um, and, and let, this, let this go? Yes, it would be game changing. In fact, all of the discussion that you had earlier on on how to manage going forward through September, October and into next year will change if there's prevention and treatment that works that's available and that's safe. And that is in fact the case. But the problem is, of course, that nobody wants to hear it and nobody lets it out except for you. You're the only one who's actually in any way the mainstream media that that is allowing anybody to speak about the evidence for the usage of these drugs. Now, I've got to say, uh, Dr. Rish, I've, I've, I knew politics was corrupt, so I've been covering it for decades, and I knew the law has a lot of corruption because I was a lawyer for, for you know, a long time. But I didn't know that you could have so much corruption in the medical field when it comes to bureaucrats, and I know there are a lot of good people in government, I'm not single anyway, and, and, and just making people better. It's stunning to me. Last word. I think, there, I think there's been a, a lot, and, it, and we hardly know the, the extent of it, both on from the drug companies, from political contrivances, and, and so on. I think it's very difficult, and circumstances now are difficult. Dr. Rich, finally, uh, do you think thousands of lives could be saved going forward if they released that hydroxy stockpile and even gave it as a prophylactic like India has done uh, and other countries have done for frontline workers if they wanted it? I think 75,000 to 100,000 lives will be saved if that happens. Well, we're going to keep talking about it. Thank you for speaking out. I know some of your colleagues at other uh, universities, Harvard, your rival over there, uh, might disagree, <laughs> but we're going to keep talking about it. Doctor, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. It is a common drug used to prevent malaria. You might have taken it before traveling overseas if you were trying not to get malaria. Uh, but most likely you never heard of this drug until last month when primetime Fox News hosts and then the president started incessantly promoting it on a daily, sometimes hourly basis as what they were quite sure uh, was a miracle cure for coronavirus. There's no big deal for this coronavirus thing. We've got a cure already. They promoted it despite zero clinical trials and next to no evidence of its effectiveness. But boy, were they insistent. What if there's already a cheap and widely available medication that's on the market to treat the virus? Chloroquine, that's a cheap anti-malaria drug, may be effective in treating coronavirus. Chloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine. Based on what I see, it could be a game changer. Hydroxychloroquine, it showed very encouraging early results. Really encouraging. Early signs are, for me, reading medical research, I was impressed. It's very effective. It's a strong, it's a strong drug. I feel good about it. 
That's all it is, just a feeling. It has shown surprising promise for treatment of coronavirus. Hydroxychloroquine. I've been telling you for a week about hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine. Hydrochloroquine. We're talking about hydroxychloroquine. It is cheap. It's considered safe. So in a lot of ways, hydroxychloroquine is the ideal medicine. Hydroxychloroquine is is a uh, very powerful drug. Would you try hydroxychloroquine? Because after all I've read, I would. I got the very early approval from the FDA. You'd never heard of hydroxychloroquine before we mentioned it. Hydroxychloroquine. I don't know. It's looking like it's having some good results. Drum roll, please. Hydroxychloroquine. What do you have to lose? Take it. There are signs that it works on this, some very strong signs. There's mounting evidence tonight that hydroxychloroquine may work. Hydroxychloroquine is now looking more and more like an important tool in treating this virus. Our national stockpile is now equipped with nearly 30 million hydroxychloroquine pills. Hydroxychloroquine is credited with saving lives. A friend of mine told me he got better because of the use of that that drug. Hydroxychloroquine seems to be working. I don't know medicine from uh, cosmology, all right? But the fact of the matter is, it's working. I actually haven't heard a bad story you want to know the truth. You know, normally you'd hear some good ones, some bad ones, and you'd still give it a shot. I haven't heard a bad story. Beginning in middle of March, hydroxychloroquine was mentioned hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times on the Fox News channel, particularly by its primetime hosts, um, and by the president from the White House podium. Uh, until about a week ago, when those mentions by Fox News and by the president just dropped off a cliff. They just stopped bringing it up. Uh, and we don't know why that is. Uh, but yesterday, we did get the results of a new study, which has yet to be peer-reviewed, but is the largest to date involving the use of hydroxychloroquine among uh, 368 veterans in veterans' hospitals across the U.S. Uh, in that trial, the drug was found to have no benefit. And there were actually more deaths reported among those who were given that drug than those who were given standard care. The authors of the study said, quote, these findings highlight the importance of awaiting the results of ongoing, prospective, randomized, controlled studies before widespread adoption of these drugs. Yeah, you think? Um, when the president was asked about that study last night, he said, quote, I don't know of the report. Obviously, there have been some very good reports, and perhaps this one is not a good report. The National Institutes of Health panel has also now weighed in on hydroxychloroquine, saying there was, quote, insufficient clinical data to recommend either for or against it. Then late today, the New York Times was first to report that a high-ranking doctor who led the HHS efforts to try to develop a coronavirus vaccine, uh, he was transferred out of that position this week and demoted after he internally questioned the president's advocacy of that drug. Dr. Rick Bright tells the Times, quote, I believe this transfer was in response to my insistence that the government invest the billions of dollars allocated by Congress into safe and scientifically vetted solutions and not in drugs that lack scientific merit. He continued, quote, specifically and contrary to misguided directives, I limited the broad use of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine promoted by his administration, promoted by the administration as a panacea, but which clearly lack scientific merit. That doctor is now no longer in charge of the search for a vaccine to save us from the deadly coronavirus because he says he was demoted when he got in the way of the president continuing to hype an unproven cure that he heard about on the Fox News channel. It is one thing to not have leadership at the federal level in response to this crisis. It is actually a whole nother thing to have the president putting American lives at risk every time he blurts something made up or that he thought he understood from TV into the microphone at the White House briefing room. And that really is happening every day. I mean, as a general, I don't have an opinion one way or the other about this president and how he should be treated. I'll lie and say that right here. I'm lying. I'm telling you, I won't tell you my opinion one way or the other about the president and how he should be treated. But as a general matter, I think we should all agree that there perhaps should be a more concerted effort to stop the spread of misinformation about this disease, particularly if it is potentially deadly misinformation. If somebody is repeatedly misinforming the American public about important things having to do with this disease, don't broadcast that. 
Don't listen to people who are lying to you about this disease. Don't broadcast their comments. Certainly don't keep doing it day after day when they've proven themselves to be lying day after day. And honestly, it doesn't matter who it is. Show some responsibility, honestly. For folks who are tuning into the broad story that Dr. Tadaro is involved with, you've probably heard about hydroxychloroquine, how it might have application for COVID-19, and of course, all the political spin with Trump being super for it, and that drawing in WHO, CDC, the whole, I would say, drama or the politicization or the institutionalization of what folks are trying to see from the data and the ground up. Perhaps I'll just give context of what has happened in the last week here with the withdrawal of a couple of key studies that have dictated how government and international organizations have treated hydroxychloroquine. Can we give the intro wedge into that story? And we'll start from there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've been following COVID-19 since January. It looked like it was going to be a, a highly infectious virus that was going to be leaving China, coming to Europe and the US. And I was doing a lot of research on it. And that's when I kind of working with a colleague came up with the proposition of using chloroquine or its closely related derivative hydroxychloroquine as a potential treatment for coronavirus. And so we published that paper in uh, mid-March, March 13th, after Elon Musk tweeted out, it, it was widely disseminated, uh, millions of views. My colleague went on Fox News a couple times to discuss it. And then once the president discussed it in a presser and tweeted it out, it became probably one of the, one of the hottest controversies of this pandemic. It, uh, it really is probably the medication that divides, divides people the most, um, in addition to a number of the other recommendations made by the, the CDC and World Health Organization. Obviously, since we released that paper, uh, I've been closely following hydroxychloroquine. I know just about every single study that's come out about it, both the, the benefits, potential benefits of this therapy, as well as the risks or potential harms. When the Lancet study came out, uh, you know, it was very interesting to me because it, it didn't really line up with the research that I've been seeing about hydroxychloroquine. 100%. And then for folks who don't necessarily follow medical journals, Lancet is essentially the Gucci, the Louis Vuitton of medical journals. All the top policymakers probably are reading this and, and really take their policy decision making from research being published and essentially certified by Lancet. So what exactly was that study and what clued you in specifically on the potential fishiness of the raw data there? Yeah, so uh, to kind of amplify your point, yeah, the, the Lancet is a 200-year-old journal. It's either the first or second most prestigious medical journal out there. So basically, if something is published and makes it through the peer review process for the Lancet, physicians and healthcare professionals essentially look at it as, as almost like God's word of medicine. The Lancet study was a supposedly a multinational observational analysis of about 96,000 hospitalized COVID-19 patients. So massive, massive database um, that collected data all the way from December into about mid-April on, on these patients. And what they're specifically looking at was how these patients did when treated with either hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine plus a, a macrolide, which a macrolide, um, the one you're probably most familiar with is azithromycin. So it's an antibiotic, but also can have some anti-inflammatory, antiviral properties as well. Sorry to interject here. And that was the combination that President Trump used prophylactically in recent weeks, correct? So the prophylactic regimen is a little bit different from the treatment regimen, which actually also, I think, affected the most recent New England Journal of Medicine study. They, they came out looking at it as prophylactic. But um, so prophylactic is for there's two different types of prophylaxis. It's called pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis. And Trump was taking the medication as post-exposure prophylaxis. There was someone that he came in contact with, I think maybe even two people at the White House, who were later discovered to have uh, to be infected with coronavirus. And so he took, I believe, a single dose of azithromycin, as well as zinc and then hydroxychloroquine. So the hydroxychloroquine, he continued throughout a two-week course um, because by that point, if, if he hadn't been infected with, with the coronavirus, then, uh, you know, it's kind of unlikely that he was going to. So the initial dose of azithromycin is probably just to combat, uh, you know, kind of that one early dose to maybe give you a little boost. Uh, but 
that kind of is a little bit more controversial. It was less research on post-exposure prophylaxis with azithromycin. But I, I'd say the mainstay of his regimen was the hydroxychloroquine. Got it. I just wanted to just tease in with folks that might have seen azithromycin associated with hydroxychloroquine, where they might have heard that or where they might have seen yep. that. So, But that is the original regimen. So that's the regimen that was first uh, studied by uh, in the south of France by Dr. Didier Rayol. And, um, and that's what he showed effectiveness in, in his clinical treatment of patients. And so that's why um, that has been such a um, kind of studied regimen, I would say, over the past couple months. Can I get back to the study? So what they discovered was, was to me, shocking not shocking to a lot of the mainstream media who had been saying, remember, all along, essentially since we came up with this paper, that hydroxychloroquine will harm you. It's got a lot of risks, uh, particularly from the cardiac side of things, uh, where it can give you a heart attack, it can cause you to go into arrhythmias. And so when this study came out, it was very quickly embraced by a lot of the mainstream media as supporting what they'd been saying for a while. And if you followed the news at all, when, when the president was taking this medication as a prophylaxis, there was a, a, you know, a lot of negative attention on how dangerous this was and irresponsible this was of him to, to do this. So the study came out and actually showed that there was, that you had twice the risk of dying from COVID-19 if you were treated with hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. So this isn't just saying that there's no benefit to this medication. They were actually saying you are more likely to die, significantly more likely to die if you get treated with this as opposed to not treated with it. And then as a secondary outcome, it showed that you were at a higher risk of developing a, uh, a cardiac arrhythmia. So your heart, uh, your heart rhythm would be basically thrown out of whack um, to the layperson. That was really shocking to me. One thing that I've been saying since March is that hydroxychloroquine very, very likely has no effect, no benefit if used late in treatment of COVID-19. It's by that point, you have such a systemic inflammatory response to this disease. You potentially have cytokine storm, you're, you, you, know, you have a, maybe a raging pneumonia, and it's unlikely that hydroxychloroquine will help you. So the fa- if the study came out showing that the results showed no benefit, I'd be kind of more inclined to believe them. But it came out actually showing that it's, it's harmful. And that, that didn't quite make sense. That didn't make sense to Dr. Raul, Dr. Zelenko, and a lot of other independent researchers uh, like myself um, around the world who were studying the results of the Lancet study. What was very interesting was how quickly this study uh, resulted in a changing uh, of kind of treatment policies or guidelines all around the world. The World Health Organization reviewed this study for a short weekend. So the study came out May 22nd on a Friday. By May 25th, Monday, the World Health Organization halted all of its clinical trials of hydroxychloroquine in about 17 different countries, I believe, and was discouraging physicians and uh, global leaders from using hydroxychloroquine really at all in treatment uh, or prophylaxis of COVID-19. This is probably the study that had maybe the most real-world impact on how physicians are treating patients with COVID-19. The way the study presented the data is it was it was very much a large data set, and they they grouped each uh, kind of uh, you know population of patients by continent. So not not by country, but actually by continent. So you had North America, uh, Europe, you had Australia. And so this was, I think, now looking back, a way to try to hide the data as much as possible. But Australia is unique because it's it's both a country and a continent. And so that was where the first red flag of the data surfaced. And what what we learned by just very simply matching the total number of COVID-19 deaths in Australia by the end of that that study uh, data collection period, showed that the study was reporting more deaths than there even were in Australia at that time. People had been talking about it uh, on Twitter, and then The Guardian put out a a report really specifically talking about uh, Australia. And the authors of the study very quickly corrected this and said, oh, well, it was just a kind of, we designated one of the hospitals to the wrong continent. It's supposed to be Asia, but we said it was in Australia. The conclusion does not change, and they published this formally to The Lancet. And, you know, essentially a way to, I think, just dismiss this, um, this inconsistency with the data. At that point, that was a, that was a very large red flag for me. Um, and they were still refusing to release the data set or let uh, independent researchers kind of look at the, the, not quite the raw data, but even to know how many hospitals were, were uh, data was collected from in each country. 
Then we started, the, the more we dove into the data, the more it didn't quite make sense. The data they were reporting from Africa was, it was, it was really, you know, data that is supposedly coming from kind of fairly sophisticated hospital systems in Africa. So supposedly these hospital systems ha- were able to give uh, the, the authors of the study, you know, real-time data. So they had to have some type of portal, electronic medical record system to, to communicate that data. And then it would, the data they were collecting was, was fairly detailed, such that it, it included, uh, you know, continuous cardiac monitoring. And just most hospitals in Africa aren't equipped and don't do this, particularly with COVID-19, which is highly infectious, and you're trying to minimize the staff-patient contact. So that was the, I say, second red flag with the data. And the third red flag, which, you know, I, I did more digging into, was they, uh, you know, they're reporting 63,000 hospitalized COVID-19 patients uh, in North America. The U.S. only had, in total, about 63,000 hospitalized patients uh, from COVID-19 at that time. And then if you want to include uh, Canada and, and Mexico, there was just a, a couple thousand more from them. It was really the bulk of the U.S. And so it, it seemed extremely unlikely, I would say actually impossible, that they were able to capture uh, detailed patient data on almost every single hospitalized COVID-19 patient in North America. I mean, that's that's a database that just doesn't exist, particularly in, in real-time data. You'd want that to happen, potentially, right? That we could track everyone in real-time in our country. That would be an ideal goal. But I think folks who actually understand a little about the health systems, I like we wish we were that efficient. We were, wish we were that organized. You're you're exactly right. I mean, that would be the kind of uh, the holy grail of, of medical research to be able to have that. But realistically, different hospital systems have very different electronic medical records. There's um, you know there's a ton of compliance requirements with this, and it's just it's it hasn't been done yet. And so so the authors when they were asked for the data, they said, oh well, we can't release the data because. It uh, is part of uh, data exchange agreements with these, you know, hundreds of hospitals that we have, and that all that information is uh, controlled by Surgisphere. And so that's when I really said, okay, well, you're asking us to trust this data that is actually unbelievably complete. You have in this black box, so fine. If we're supposed to trust the Surgisphere company for coming up with this all the data, let me let me look into it. And so. At the time I looked into it, there really wasn't much investigative research in the surgisphere. So I have both the background. I'm a, like I said before, so I'm a physician. I, I know how patient databases look. I, I know how um, you know medicine works. And then on the other side, I'm also a, a tech investor. So I, I evaluate startup tech companies all the time. And surgisphere, their website looked like a startup tech company. It did not look like a, uh, a mature database that was handling, as they said at the time, 240 million patient encounters from 1,200 hospitals in 50 or so different countries. It was mostly promotional, and the only real research they had on there was their one other study they published in the New England Journal of Medicine about a, a month earlier. And they had no team. They had buzzwords of, of very complicated uh, analytics, which included artificial intelligence, machine learning. Machine learning. Right, yeah. exactly. All the buzzwords, you know, for a uh, startup tech company. It, yeah, being in Silicon Valley, you hear that, you're like, all right, is this uh, some human, you know, filtering some stuff? Or is this like, yeah, what is exactly. this? Exactly. And so to accomplish any of this, it would require a massive team. It would require, you know, so- senior software engineers, uh, data scientists, physicians, uh, researchers, uh, and, and over years or months to years, it would be very difficult to put this together. There was no mention of really a team besides just the founder. The LinkedIn on each of the, uh, on the Surgisphere website just went to, to the founder, Dr. Sapan Desai. Surgisphere did have a LinkedIn. And so if you go to the LinkedIn for the corporation, it was really just five people, five employees for Surgisphere that were listed. There was the founder, there was two businessmen who just joined the company about two months earlier. One of them looked like he was still working for a different company, so maybe it was like a part-time thing. And then two other, what they were called science editors. So one of the science editors is actually a, a science fiction writer. So if, I don't know if that counts as science or not. But the other science editor actually looks like he, he passed away, I think, last year. He was a, it looked like he was a mentor to Dr. Sapan Desai. But before two to three months earlier, it looked like there really wasn't any team besides this one guy. <laughs> And then if you look at the subsidiary companies, because I was like, okay, well, maybe this is Surgis for like their head corporation, but their subsidiary companies is where they have this, this big team that's performing all this sophisticated analytics. 
And so Quartz Clinical is one of the, the subsidiary companies that's most often mentioned. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard and a lot of people have heard, but there's a YouTube video out there. It looks like one of those professionally done YouTube videos where it has the founder in the booth with his booth in the background talking about how great Surgisphere is. And then on comes a, a young woman who is, you know, this, the screen comes up with uh, Surgisphere director of sales. And she's talking about what they're doing, what they've accomplished at Surgisphere. And it, it actually turns out she's just an adult model for hire. Basically the whole picture for the team was that there's no real team. It's really just this, this one guy behind this whole operation. And then things even got fishier. If you were to check the internet archives, you can't find anything about this company. It was actually the, the website was excluded from the internet archives, which is strange. One thing is for the internet archives to not have uh, a website, like they didn't collect data or collect a snapshot of it, but that's not what it says. It was actually somehow intentionally excluded or removed from the, uh, the archives. So you really couldn't get much history on Surgisphere and what they were saying they were accomplishing or doing uh, even just three months ago. And then the last thing that was just didn't make sense was how does Dr. Desai have this massive database? And he's a highly published uh, author. He's published about 39 times in the past five years. Why did he never use this massive database? <laughs> like he's published, you know, this, this database should be a treasure trove for... Uh, researchers and physicians and, and everywhere. And I would at the bare minimum have used it myself if I were him. But there was no real study that came out using this database until April. So it was by that point, it was very clear that this was actually not manipulated data, but I would say an entirely fake fraudulent data. And so that's what I put out in my, uh, my expose. I called it, I titled it a study out of thin air. And I published that on May 29th, tweeted it out, and it got a good amount of attention. And then I think The Guardian came out with a similar story uh, about four or five days later. And then, uh, and then it kind of started to hit mainstream media. Incredible. I have a lot of people that send me messages every day that have different tips and things to look into. And so I really have to acknowledge those, those people as well that uh, contribute to, to that article. I, I'm just still digesting the ramifications here where literally WHO international policymakers are have made decisions on something that was so flimsy that you on your part-time day job slash hobby of being an independent researcher poking around a little bit at the source data and it, it is so flimsy that it falls apart medcram.com welcome to another medcram covid19 update and this is going to be a juicy update because there is a bombshell of interesting news over the last couple of days about studies, about data collection, and about retractions of big studies in big name journals. Well, you may remember this article. This was published in The Lancet on May 22nd, and it was a look at a registry composed of 671 hospitals on six different continents. And they looked at hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with or without macrolide like azithromycin for the treatment of COVID-19. And in this retrospective review, you may recall, they found that there was no improvement in mortality with either hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with or without a macrolide. In fact, they found that they were independently associated with an increased risk of in-hospital mortality. Not only that, it may have been due to ventricular arrhythmias during hospitalization. So, the interpretation was, quote, we were unable to confirm a benefit of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine when used alone or with a macrolide on our in-hospital outcomes for COVID-19. Each of these drug regimens was associated with decrease in-hospital survival and an increased frequency of ventricular arrhythmias when used for treatment of COVID-19. And this came out of Harvard. The Brigham and Women's Hospital is in Boston. And of course, we're going to give you a link in the description below to this article once again. But notice that the second author on this article is a surgeon by the name of Sepan S. Desai. Note, this is a different Dr. Desai than Dr. Richie Desai from Osmosis, who we've done interviews with before. This is Dr. Sapan Desai, and he is a founder of a company called Surgisphere. 
And why that's important is because the development and maintenance of the Surgical Outcomes Collaborative Database was funded by Surgisphere Corporation in Chicago. Notice it also says that Dr. Desai is the founder of Surgisphere Corporation. Well, apparently there's been some investigative reporting on this company called Surgisphere, and apparently it doesn't have a very large footprint, and it's kind of unknown. But before we get to that, we have to look and see what was the fallout of that Lancet article, because major decisions in countries were made as a result, not the least of which was that the World Health Organization put their prospective study of hydroxychloroquine on hold because of the outcome of that research article. And the reason why that happened was because of some of the data that was coming out. It seemed as though there were more deaths in Australia from this data set than was actually published in terms of the total deaths related to COVID-19. And so something didn't go together with that data set. It was later explained by Surgisphere that it was because of a misplaced hospital data set. Instead of it being in Australia, it was placed in Asia, and that might have been the reason. But more research into this led to some other issues. Now, we won't talk much about it, but just to note that there was also a New England Journal of Medicine article on ACE inhibitors and ARBs that was also published, and it was based on data sets that were obtained by Surgisphere as well. Anyhow, because of these inconsistencies, the authors of these papers that were published in both The Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine asked Surgisphere for the entire data set so they could have a third party independently verify the numbers that they were getting. Well, Surgisphere refused, and as a result of that, the authors themselves of these papers recommended to The Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine to have these papers retracted. That's correct. The Lancet paper, the hydroxychloroquine Lancet paper, is retracted, and the New England Journal of Medicine also a retraction. So we're going to do one more can uh, medical cancel culture story. Um, we share these stories because we feel an obligation to speak out, and we've been asked over and over when people hear this information why we didn't speak out sooner or why more doctors aren't speaking out. So we just want to share with you the pressure that doctors are under to tow a particular line that's being told to us. There is real professional and personal costs to not doing, you know, not following the group think, and we just want to share that experience with you. Um, and as we just heard, one of our own doctors wasn't able to get a medication that he thought could potentially be life-saving for his own father, um, a medication that you can just pick up off the shelves in much of the world, which is really very sad. A sad I don't know what you would have done if he had been COVID positive and you had that information. That's just terrible. Anyway, there's many ways to silence physicians, so we're going to hear from our next colleague, Dr. Todaro. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm uh, Dr. James Todaro. I'm a residency-trained ophthalmologist, and I've been deeply investigating COVID-19 since about February of this year, and really took on, I'd say, a much more central role uh, after co-authoring, I guess, the, the first widely disseminated paper uh, on hydroxychloroquine as a potential treatment uh, for COVID-19. Um, many of you may have heard of this document. It was the one that was tweeted out by Elon Musk to his 34 million followers, and then just a few days after the president was talking about hydroxychloroquine to the nation. Uh, since then, we know that there's been a, a substantial amount of evidence now showing hydroxychloroquine to be not just safe, which we already knew, but also effective. And there are many ongoing clinical trials still today. Yet if you were to try to read that original document that we published, you wouldn't be able to. Um, after millions of views, about a week after it was published, Google took it down for violating its terms of service. Um, and it's still down to this day. A couple months later, I wrote another article called The Study Out of Thin Air. This was the article about the Lancet study that was published discrediting hydroxychloroquine. It was kind of a little bit of a deep dive into Surgisphere, which was what we know now is a shell corporation that provided this uh, it's a most likely fabricated data set. Uh, there are reports that people messaged me saying that Facebook continually took down the link to the article. And uh, later, they allowed the link because it turned out to be all be true, of course, and that study was formally retracted just a couple days later. Um, 
This degree of censorship is happening to not just physicians, but people everywhere on social media platforms. We have the CEO of YouTube who openly stated that anything that was said on YouTube that was against the advice of the World Health Organization, which we all know has made a number of mistakes throughout this pandemic, uh, was subject would be subject to censorship. Um, we know that uh, Mark Zuckerberg said the similar thing on Facebook. And, um, you know, this is incredible, and it, it kind of goes to what Dr. Erickson was talking about earlier about the American Republic. Because with the pandemic, with the fear of this pandemic, in the matter of just weeks, we, with, with mandated stay-at-home laws, with rules against public gatherings, we really lost the right to peaceably assemble. So people naturally go to social media platforms, even more so than before, to communicate with one another, to get messages out and learn. Um, and then we're censored there, eroding our, our ability to have free speech. And so what we've seen is in the matter of just a couple weeks, uh, really some of the most fundamental rights of the American Republic being taken away from us. And I think it's incredibly important for Americans to, to resist the loss of these civil liberties. Thank you.